Hello, this is Stephen King. Well, sometimes that is better. Hi, Georgie. I'm your number one fan. Get busy living. Get busy dying. Here's Johnny. <laughs> Hi and welcome back to the Constant Reader Podcast with me, your host Richard Shepard. And today I'm going to be talking to writer and journalist James Smythe about King's 1989 novel The Dark Half. Uh, this is a big one for Constant Readers as it, as it deals with a, a main writer dealing with the exposure of his pseudonym in the same way that Stephen King and Richard Bachman were revealed to be one and the same. It's a great book. Uh, it's, it's a bit of a departure for King. It's kind of more of a, a crime novel than anything else. And it sets up needful things nicely. And it's got a truly grim ending and a truly despicable villain in George Stark. James Smythe, as a writer himself, considers The Dark Half one of King's best, and he should know. For years he wrote a regular column in The Guardian about rereading Stephen King. I was a big fan of that column. It took an incisive, smart look at King's canon, and his articles can still be found online, as well as books can still be found on Amazon and all good booksellers. So, without further ado, here's James Smythe myself, cutting up The Dark Half. And with a special thanks to Stephen Leslie Parks for sound production on this one. He's the best. A moment, if you don't mind me asking. I've just finished working, uh, I've just written a couple of episodes for George the Last Kingdom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good stuff. So just what I've just written some episodes for season five of The Last Kingdom, which they are currently filming. That's very cool. Um, which is nice. Uh, and yeah, I worked on this Apple show that hasn't been announced yet, which is... Uh, about I don't know what it will be called when it actually comes out if it comes out. Um, <laughs> they've got very strange policies about how they make TV. Mm. Um, but yeah, I um I worked on this Apple show and um, I've got a program a show with the BBC which hopefully will fingers crossed come to something. Um, so yeah, that's what I do for that's what I do for day job now, which is nice. Sounds great. The, the, I'm assuming the Apple Show isn't Lisey's story, which I know they, they've got coming out. I think it is soon. unfortunately both unfortunately and fortunately, as it is not one of my favourites. I neither. It's fine. I find it really I really, uh, really I, annoying. It's just so irritating, <laughs> and I'm really concerned that that baby talk is going to have somehow found its way into the script, and that I'm going to have like Julianne Moore doing this irritating voice well i think for... king wrote the script himself so i don't think we're going to be able to avoid what he thinks is obviously uh-huh. charming but um no i mean like 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 yourself i've i've read pretty much every word stephen king has written but that one is it's it's the only one i've never finished uh yeah uh, i did i finish it i think i probably did but i can't remember it which says a lot <laughs> it's the only one that i never i mean i just i it is so far down the list. Mm. Probably, I'd say it's my least favourite. Um, and I think I'd have to scratch my... Even the ones that people are, like, nasty about sometimes, like your Rose Matters and whatever. I'm very fond of Rose Matter. Underrated. Um, I agree, yeah. Yeah. Um, and Desperation. And The Regulators. I would take either of those over Lizzie's story. Um but yeah, I, I uh, no, it, it was not that. It was, 
it was a very strange show about a volcano that creates parallel worlds. So very cool, man. Um, I love for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah no, it's <laughs> yeah. Um, Part of the reason I kind of I, I I do this podcast was I wanted to highlight some of the underrated, underappreciated, kind of slightly unknown Stephen King stories. So stuff like the girl who loved Tom Gordon. Well, Bag of Bones, which yeah. I think is another one that doesn't get enough love, and it's really no, not movie. even close to enough love. No, because that's like a really classic ghost story, really well written as well. I yeah, what a lot. It's very um, it's it's also like you can tell in that story that he is a fan of like because it's very gothic. It's how you do it's how you do a gothic ghost story. Exactly. You are him writing the sort of books set in the places you write them, mm-hmm. and I love that. I, I, I mean, he's obviously you cannot have. I mean, how many novels he got now? Seventy something. Something like that. You it can't you sick, have it? that many. Sorry. Makes you sick, doesn't it? Seventy novels. Good it does. Oh, yeah. <laughs> genuinely, <laughs> every year when they're like, "Oh yeah, there's another two coming this year," and I'm <laughs> just bashing my head against the wall trying to finish one, and I'm like, "Oh god!" And he's written two, has he? Sure, of course he has. They're going to be good, are they? Fine. Of course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> of course, sure. So, um, if, if I can, if I can take it back just a minute. Um, yes. So, of course, you. How I found out about you, James Smythe, the journalist, was through your rereading of Stephen King for your Guardian column, which I think started in 2012. Was that correct? It started in 2012. That's right. But when did your um, when did your relationship when did you become a, a constant reader? Were you like an early adopter? Yeah, um, thirteen. I want to say I it was. It was my guess is ninety three, ninety four. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I had gone from your Hardy Boys and whatnot to uh, Point Horrors, as I guess it would have been Point Horrors then. Sure, I suppose. And then very quickly, my dad had a lot of Stephen Kings. He had a lot of King Herbert and Kuntz. Yeah, yeah. As the unholy trilogy did at the time. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. A couple of Richard Layman's. The things where you're like, oh, and and I read. I can't. I think probably the first thing I read was uh, was Rats. Probably. That's a hell of a lot. I I will have gone in with with Dean Kuntz because it felt like an easy gateway. It felt like, and and they're. They're also obviously slightly trashier, and that isn't a criticism. No, agreed. Some of the early Kuhn stuff is is, is extraordinarily well written trash. I mean, something like yeah. Midnight or Lightning or Phantoms. Mm-hmm. I think that these are these are really good books, but the later yeah. stuff is, is really dreadful. Um, so we, I went in, uh, and I found Stephen King from there, and we had. Uh, my dad would have had all of the big hitters. So there was, I definitely remember there was Stand, but it was the original Stand. It yeah. was the un, unrewritten or unreedited Stand. Um, and there was It, and there was uh, a few others, and there was The Dark Half. And there was, uh, the, well, what I see as, as probably my favorite trilogy, even though I really hate one of them, uh, which would be The, the Misery, Dark Half, Tommy Knocker's Rock. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my dad had those, and I and I remember just sort of working through them. I mean, like at a in that way that you can when you're a kid at a, a genuinely disgraceful rate, <laughs> reading you know 
<laughs> reading a whatever it is, 400,000 word novel in the form of it in like a week and feeling <laughs> like, where's more? Give me more now. Do you think um, it's interesting that um, kind of Misery, Tommy Knockers, and Darkhaft—they both have writers as antagonists. I know a lot of Stephen King novels do protagonists or other antagonists. I, should I, say. I love those books um, because they document. Uh, <laughs> it's like the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. They are this like little series of uh, insights. I really loathe, and I'm loathe as a writer myself to do that thing where you you want to read into the text and you want to sort of like, you know, it's very easy to like the Roman, the Roland Barthes, death of the author thing, like sure. you should remove the author. It's impossible. It's just <laughs> impossible. And it's very hard. It's even more impossible with King than it is with most writers. And I love that with those three, you can really chart the point where he was at with drugs and alcohol and his own sense of rehabilitation mm. and his mm. own sense of internal mental collapse. Mm. Like I, I, that there's even, and I would, I would describe the Tommy Knockers particularly as uh, probably lovably disastrous. Yeah. Like I don't think it's a particularly good. I mean, well, it's not a good book. It's it's a B movie. It's, it's a bit, but it's a B movie that goes on for like seventeen hours, <laughs> and you want it to be. You know how a good B movie is like 85 minutes and you're like, well, that was fun. I don't have to think about it. But the Tommy Knockers sure. is still going and it's, it's just, it's still going now. And I started watching it 20 years ago. Um, <laughs> uh, but Misery in the Dark, I mean, you know, the Dark Half is probably too long as well, but but Misery, certainly. I, I, I put Misery up as one of the finest I'll say thrillers, I, I, mm -hmm. novels, frankly, but the finest thrillers in the English language. I think Misery is an absolute masterpiece of a book. Agreed. Um, and it was that was one that I read very early. Um, and really blew my mind because my assumption was that King was a specific type of writer, mm -hmm. which if you read The Stand and um, he had all the early ones. And I do think that... Um, I think that King got much better sort of 10 years after he started, as most writers do, obviously, when he, you could see him learning. That's interesting. But my dad had, you know, Christine and Cujo, and, and I love those because they felt so, um, it's about the car. Yeah. It's about the big dog. It's high concept, really, isn't it? Like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then, but Misery was the one where I was like, right, what's the, oh, the, the, the bad guy isn't really like a demon or yeah. <laughs> the, the bad guy is just this person. <laughs> I, I I don't know. It felt really interesting to me to break through this idea um, of what horror can be. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was, it was uh, absolutely fascinating. Anyway, so that's, that's where I was with those. And then uh, from that point, I read everything I used to, um, I went full hardback after that point and, and started buying everything as soon as it came out. Um, Do you think it was kind of an influence on you to um, to become a writer? Did you kind of see that? Because it's such an immersive... When you read Stephen King, you, you learn a lot about writing, even even more than in the book on writing. You learn about the life of an author and what can happen and what can go wrong. And I think that's... I think a lot of people got that kind of um, idea. A hundred percent. So many of his books are about 
the creative process. Mm. And if you start to really dig into them and start to go, okay, I'm going to apply like literary theory readings to these texts. You can look at, there are arguments you can make something like the Langoliers, for example. I know we're not going to get into that here today, <laughs> but like the Langoliers is really interesting to me as a story that is about the loss of time and feeling like you have been wrenched out of a moment and trying to progress while time is moving past you. And I take that as a metaphor for King's writing. He wanted to do all this work and he had all these ideas and he wanted to get them down and there wasn't the time in the day. So he obviously started finding ways to give himself more time at night. Um, I, and I, th I think with so many of the books are about writers or artists or creatives, even the people that he puts in um, in like blue collar roles, sure. he will find ways to make them creative. He will yeah. find ways to make them think creatively. Alan Pangborn's a great example of a character who um, thinks outside the box and King is very keen on making sure that we know that he thinks outside the box, that he isn't just this staunch, I'll follow the rules. He's somebody who, who wants to believe. And, mm. and I think that with those three books, with, with Dark Half Misery and Tommyknockers, as you say, they've, they've all got writers at the core. They've all got um, the idea of trying to create yeah. something as mm -hmm. well, like active working writers. Yeah. And it was really appealing to me when I was that age, because that was when I was getting into the idea of writing. You know, I was writing my own sort of fan fiction. Like I, I remember um, I rewrote The Dark Half when I was what, 16 or 17 or something, I like rewrote it as a short story because I didn't, I didn't quite realize that plagiarism wasn't cool. But I, I'm trying to work out how it worked. Like, how do you juggle the POVs that he does, which is something that, as you like, every King reader knows, like, he is incredibly good at head hopping. Like, it's, mm -hmm. I think his single greatest skill as a writer is his ability to move between characters and not lose the narrative thread of what's going on. Um, so how does he do the head hopping? How does he do the, uh, how do you get the machine stuff in there? How do you get the short stories or the extracts from the text embedded in there? Mm -hmm. And it's still flow. That stuff made, so, so as I was learning to write, those books were really, <laughs> they were like an instruction manual, less so with the Tommyknockers because I didn't know where to get lots of drugs at the time. <laughs> But uh, you found um, out, though. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, it's kind um, of interesting that. But yeah, you know, they, they, were, they were hugely important. Uh, but in in all of those three books, you have a writer who is compelled to write, kind of against his will, but not really against his will. And I think that's an absolutely fascinating yeah. kind of, as you say, a metaphor for the idea of maximum overdrive. The idea you've got to keep on writing; that you can't actually stop, no matter how detrimental it'll be to your relationships with other people and to the world and to any other job you've got going on because Paul Sheldon doesn't, yeah. doesn't want to write Misery's Child but he, he has to and Thad Beaumont doesn't want to write Steel Machine but he has to and I think um, uh, Bobby is it Bobby and the Tommyknockers who writes the, the Cowboy Bobby, yeah. and then ends up you know, chained yeah, yeah. to this kind of creative process that's killing it. I think it's a really as you say it's a really interesting metaphor for both writing and addiction, which are like at the core of these yeah. books, isn't it? I mean, and, and I, I can't, knowing how astute he is and how thoughtful he is about his own process, 
it's not something he really talks. I mean, it's interesting because like a huge, I, I wish, for example, I wish that on writing went into that section a lot more. And mm. I understand why it doesn't. But to me, it's, it's fascinating. Like I would love to, he must have known. He knew he was writing these writers. He knew that, uh, as you say, Paul Sheldon was compelled to write this thing. But Paul Sheldon was also like a hollowed out shell of a man at that who was trying to drag himself back to normality. Mm. Uh, he knew that Thad was somebody who is, um, who feels like there are literally two versions of himself, one of whom is this terrible creature of a man and one of whom is trying to maintain this rational sanity, this face of sanity for the sake of his family. Mm. And I don't believe that you can write that closer description of the thing you are struggling with yourself while you're going through the struggle and not be aware of it. Mm. Even if you never talk about it, even if it's something you only talk about in therapy. And, and I, it's interesting because after that as well, you get into the phase where you're in, you get to, to needful things, which is obviously yes. such a fascinating story about the idea of wanting. Mm. And want is such a basic part of addiction. That idea that there is always something you want and having it comes with the price. And I feel like, because th that came after those three, and I, there's this sort of, it's like a coda to that idea. Mm. It's like the, the full stop on the idea that, yes, I'm past that now, but that's never going away. And there's always going to be this little Leyland Gaunt saying, do you want, do yeah. you want some? Well, it, it's interesting um, reading this book is how nicely it sets up Needful Things because you have Alan Pang, yeah. you have that setting up where his wife is ill and by the time Needful Things comes around, she is dead. It also mentions Polly Trammers yep. in passing who Alan Pangborn ends up with, of course. Norris Ruthwick, yep. Buster Keaton, all those guys. And um, it's also the idea that, how best to put it? Again, it's, it's the idea of this, because Needful Things is essentially the monkey's paw. It's be careful what mm -hmm. you wish for because you might get it and then it's going to fuck your life. And again, the dark half is exactly the same thing because Tad, he's, he's writing these books that nobody wants to read and he does get that fame. He does, Well, very few people want to read it. It's, it's literary fiction, so I don't know. It's, and he's, but, it, but by writing a genre, by, by writing the electric yeah. machine novels, he gets the fame, he gets the financial security, he gets that he gets the article in People magazine, all that stuff. And it's kind of this weird dichotomy between wanting something and knowing it's bad for you, isn't it? That idea of it's it is, maybe it's, it's maybe really it's selling out slightly, I don't know. It's it is really fascinating. It is um King's obviously in that strange position where yes, he had the struggle beforehand, mm. but actually his rise to fame was pretty, you know pretty quick like i wouldn't say instant but certainly very fast mm. and he went to a point where then i think everything was a hit right it wasn't until later on when you started to get some that were like like your rose matters where they sell slightly less than maybe everybody wanted but you're still talking about ridiculous <laughs> figures yeah what i've always found interesting about the dark half is it's the sort of book you write if you're Stephen King and your books aren't selling, but the Richard Bachman books are selling gangbusters, <laughs> and you and you're then going, oh fuck that Richard Bachman, I hate him. Can you imagine everyone's buying thinner and they're not buying <laughs> quickly? And and so it's really interesting to me because it's all it is a careful what you wish for, but it's also like a what if, right? Yeah. It's also 
Um, what if people didn't want yeah Stephen King but wanted Richard Bankman? How would that have turned out? That would be yeah yeah. What can it's, it's always been such a weird thing to me with Bankman because I'm like you you publish these books under this name mm. because you literally wanted to publish more books than you had exactly the ability to publish. Yeah. It wasn't that you weren't selling. It wasn't that they're radically different. I yeah. mean, I still I maintain I, I put the long walk up there as anything the quality bar anything as good as anything else King has written. I really love it. I'm not as much of a fan of the rest of them. Mm -hmm. um, I like Sinner. I think Sinner is a very interesting, funny book. If you read it as black comedy, yeah, it's a very it, fun book. It is. Sinner is closer in tone to, and I'm, I can't lie, I'm not sure that I knew it was a pseudonym when I read it, um, but it's closer in tone to your Kuntz's, actually, than to the the kings of the time i can kind of see that yeah um like it it does have that bit of comedy and it's it's just a little bit more wry and also it has no and, and i i don't use this word in a critical way it has no bloat to it mm -hmm. it is it is quite efficient at just doing what it wants to do it doesn't need to head up much it sort of stays close pov it and it just does what it needs to do essentially it's a shaggy dog um, story isn't it it's just a it's yeah. just a yeah. A, it, maybe it would have worked better as a short story or novella, even because it's just it's all getting towards yeah, that point at the end. Exactly. It's if it, you know if there had been a five past midnight and that was one of them, you'd have been like, yeah, sure, that's <laughs> yeah, one of them. Yeah. That's where we are. <laughs> and um, then you have the, the the anomaly that is Blaze in the mid nineties, which is just a very strange, mm. unusual novel. I think <laughs> it's it, it's one yeah. of the few I've only read once, but I might have to go back and uh, take another look at that one. It's it's not the best. It's not the best. Um, I Blaze was it was post desperation and regulators. Yeah, it's like the last back. If memory serves. Mm. Um, and I can't. I can never remember. Was it the regulators that was the back on one of those? Yeah. Two? Desperation's king regulators. So it's post those, and that felt really like I. I really like those books. I remember buying them. It was like Harry Potter for me or something. I went and got them. The morning that yeah. I got, like Saturday morning, I was like there waiting. <laughs> um, and I read Desperation first because I remember thinking that's what I should do. Yes. Uh, and it was the better of the two. Agreed. <laughs> um, but yes, uh, Backman, uh, it's, it's a funny thing because he never, I feel like King liked Backman much more than the dark half would suggest a writer should like their, their alter ego pseudonym. Well, that's, that's kind of the interesting thing about the dark half is that um, George Stark is probably the best character in it. You're your antagonist, your mm -hmm. evil villain. And he's kind of the most dynamic, certainly the most charming. But I think in some ways also like the most sympathetic because his needs are very simple. Yeah. He wants to not die. He wants to not be buried in that yeah. cemetery. He just wants to live. But the only thing he knows how to yeah. do is like hurt people and kill people. So he gets towards that point where, you know, it's it, it, he wants to live, but at the expense of everybody else, and we can't just let that go on. But it's a shame because he, I know, I I felt for him. I, I felt for the guy because he's he's a newborn. He doesn't really know what he's doing. Yeah, and it's but it's again, it's that it's that very clear addiction thing of the fact that he has a really singular want and need that's combined with each other and. 
the only way to solve and to cure him essentially is to provide him with the things that he wants and needs mm. or eradicate him entirely those are your two options there's no reasoning there's no um but that makes him more sympathetic in itself because as soon as you start to think about him in those terms you're then stepping back and you're going oh poor steven bashing out these words <laughs> feeling this stuff mm. um <laughs> which because I, I i do think and like it's interesting when anybody writes anything where they are doing a sort of demon inside novel, they are obviously trying to purge something. They want to say something right? about themselves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, always. And there's there's something about um, that as well, where it's there's just this sense of you're writing this nice guy who has essentially got secrets, mm-hmm. but also he's just trying to... He's just trying to keep his family together. He's just trying to make everything okay. And he doesn't want to be in this situation. And I'll look like fate and writing, <laughs> that awful curse that is writing, have <laughs> caused him to be in this situation. And, and I think that makes him less sympathetic because he is so... But also why I like him, I suppose, or why I like the, the story is that he's almost insipid. And I think that that, again, is the, it's the addiction element where you look at it and you go, I don't... I don't like the guy that I am when I am sure. taking these things, mm. but I also don't like the guy that I am when I'm not. <laughs> what else you got? You know, yeah. <laughs> well, that, that's a good point. Yeah. Well, I, that was in my notes. It's like I don't actually like Tad Beaumont very much during this book. I don't think he's no. particularly. He's not like in that classic tradition of king writer heroes like Ben Mears or even even like Jack Torrance, where they're kind of in charge of things. No. They, they take action. He's kind of, as you say, insipid, I think it's probably a good word for it. And he has a very bland life. He has this kind of very bourgeois mentality, I think. And, you know, he's, he's a nice enough chap, but there's nothing really about him that makes you think, yeah, you, you deserve this. Or, or more importantly, you don't deserve what's happening to you. You don't deserve George Stark coming at you like this because, <laughs> you know. He's a character who has the most interesting thing about him removed in the first five pages of the novel. <laughs> That's true. And, <laughs> Which is literally the other character that you that, like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and that's the one that you're like, I mean, because there's obviously there there is a there is a discussion probably about who the actual protagonist of that novel is. Mm. And if you start to think of it as being Stark, then it's quite a depressing <laughs> book. But there is an argument that it is him. But that's why I think you have Alan Pangborn in there, because Al- Alan is the humanizing element to it. Alan is like the guy you actually like. He's your king everyman who's kind of sturdy. He's kind of he's got a good moral compass on him and he knows what he's about. And I think that's why it's really interesting that at the end of this book, and this book has, I think, really a, a very depressing ending in a way. That <laughs> It's true that Pangborn and Liz kind it's of really abandon Tad to look at his burning down house and he's like got his hands over his face and he can't deal with what's actually happened and Alan has to lead Liz away and say no stop and it's even more depressing when you read I think it's in Bag of Bones or Needful Things where it's needful things in passing Alan says oh yeah the Tad Bowman like started drinking again and then he killed himself yeah. oh, okay <laughs> <laughs> kind of takes a shine it's, off it doesn't it yeah. <laughs> it's just brutal it's really given that it would have been so easy for King to be like Thank God that guy pulled himself <laughs> together and went off to to build houses for kids yeah. somewhere else. 
you could have been like, oh, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> Alan just gets to deliver the No, that's it. It got nah, he just he killed himself. It's fine. Yeah, no Moving on. <laughs> His wife left him and he started drinking. And yeah, that was it, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh. I, saw, I mean, it's, it, it's, a, it's a bit of a downer. Yeah, but it, um, it, it kind of it, it's I, it's the idea of like authorial responsibility as well. I mean, you, you're you're a novelist. I mean, when you create yeah. a character, I mean, how do you how do you feel about it? Are you are you protective? Do you like them? Do you dislike them? Do you do you, do you kind of think about them beyond the page? I um yes, some of them. Hmm. Some of them you. I think you have to to some extent love or. Maybe that's the wrong word. Empathise with or certainly understand every character that you write. Even when you're writing somebody like a George Stark, you, you understand what their wants are and their needs are. And they are bloody-minded in that. And they're, they are really they the singular focus. But you, ha- you understand and you understand why they are doing it. Mm. And that, to me, is a thing that um, I have to find with every single character. I have to understand why they've reached the point that they've reached and why they're going to get to the point that they're going to get to. And there is, uh, it's incredibly complicated with bad guys Mm. because you are trying to empathize with somebody who is not on the same moral compass as you. So then you end up becoming uh, focused on do they have integrity of their own beliefs? And if they have integrity of their own beliefs, then at least you can say, well, look, you you are going through with this. Um, and that's something that that's something that I think I learned from King is that you, particularly when I think about less less about the dark half, but thinking about something like it, where you have such a blisteringly wide range of protagonists, all who have different uh, and antagonists who have different moral beginnings endings they have they all work so differently Mm. but he had to understand who they were so that when he kills one of them you care or so that when somebody does something unexpected you go oh my god i didn't expect that but also that's an entirely other thing i think that's the difference between king and a lot of novelists who maybe um were thrown in with king in particularly in the 80s horror novels there's a lot of i read a lot of trashy horror novels over my life where characters have unexpected turns that are completely unearned. Yeah. And King earns everything. And for me as a novelist, that was one of those lessons that I really wanted to take was how do you make sure every single decision, every single choice is absolutely 100% earned? It has become probably the most single, the most singly dull thing I say in any conversation about any book. I used to teach creative writing. Mm-hmm. And my thing for everyone Every single one of my students that bring these stories, I'll be like, yeah, I don't feel like they've earned this ending. I feel like you've just thrown me into this. <laughs> you felt like the story needed to You just wanted it to end. Yeah. It <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did. But, no, not all of them. But the, <laughs> the reason that a twist works or whatever is because it is earned. The reason that... It's, which is an interesting thing about that Alan Pangborn moment in Need for Things, because I'm not sure that King's earned that beyond... I put you through the ringer there, so I'll give you a full stop that is really just makes things much worse. Mm. It feels like drawing a line, perhaps, rather than... Well, this is kind of the a, a recurring criticism of Stephen King that I'm sure you've heard before, is that it, the endings are always a little flaccid or a little um, 
as you say, unearned. Well, what did you make of the ending to the dark half then? Because it is, it, it's it's certainly dramatic. It's a, and it's a lovely image that George it Stark is. being carried through the wall of this building by this tornado of sparrows, and then being like pecked to death over the over the horizon. It's it's a beautiful visual image. But did did it work for you like satisfactorily as like as a narrative conclusion? Yeah. Uh, yes. Look. Right. So. I have a complicated thing with The Dark Half. I would argue, and I can argue, that The Dark Half is my favourite book of all time. Okay. I recognise that it is not necessarily the best book of all time. Okay. And I do not believe it is the best book of all time. <laughs> but in terms your of favourites, in terms of things yeah. that matter to you and affect you, and like the concept of the sparrows in that book, I can't even tell you the level of obsession that I had with just the image of the sparrows. Mm-hmm. There's, I wrote, my, my first proper novel was a novel called The Testimony, which is nothing like a Stephen King book, except for the fact that, whatever, I'm obsessed with it. It's, uh, <laughs> everyone in the world hears this voice talking to them at the same time. It's a very high concept idea. Oh, yeah. But the big, the, uh, the phrase, and one of the first phrases in the book that you read is the sparrows are flying again. <laughs> because I was like, well, I, that's the sort of thing that somebody in government would say when you've had an attack and you didn't want to put out of the airwaves of yeah. an attack. But it just sits there and it's been there my whole life. The ending, I wrote another novel called No Harm Can Come to a Good Man, which is, <laughs> if I want to be really lazy about it, here's the dead zone, here's the dark half. Nice. Okay. Smash them in. together yeah. and that's what you get. Um, and the ending has moments where I went, I without giving it away, in case anybody listens to this goes, oh, that sounds interesting. It's not as good as either of those two, but still. <laughs> it ends in a way that pays tribute, I think, to the ending of The Dark Half. Mm. I think that Stark is such a strange malevolence mm. and a strange unexplainable malevolence mm-hmm. that doing something that feels high concept and weird with him is the only way of disposing of him. I think that you can't, because there's that there's that whole thing of Thad wanting to know how Stark has appeared and if he is part of himself. It's an interesting point. And that's the only yeah. bit that feels like it's tangible and real. And then it sort of all explodes upon him at the end. Mm. And I like the idea that he gets left with no actual answers as well. I find that really fascinating because as soon as you make it into sparrows and weirdness and essentially the function of a ghost being dragged like there's there's a sort of idea of being dragged back to hell almost. Mm. as soon as you get into that you go well so it wasn't was it not a part of you did you not and like and there are some really interesting questions about how much responsibility you have over that which again leads you back to the addiction thing and do, does the darker half of my personality am i responsible for that in the daytime as i am in the evening um yeah, it's interesting. There's a couple yeah, of characters towards the end of the book when they're Pangborn, Tad and Liz and George are all in the same house together. And they, so, I think one of them says, oh, you're the ghost of Tad's brother who ne- was never born then. And yeah. you look at that and you go, oh, yeah, okay. But it doesn't really ring particularly correct. It doesn't really, it seems like a very no. sketchy explanation for what is actually happening. And I, yeah, I agree. I think it's much better when he doesn't explain exactly what was going on here because again it gives the idea that yeah maybe Tad was responsible for a lot more of it than perhaps he realized 
that there's a great deal of subconscious in Stark. Yeah. I completely agree. I don't think there is... I never want him to be a ghost. Mm. I don't want that as a resolution. It's not a ghost story, which is... It is fundamentally a story about... Well, it's in the title, right? It yeah. is fundamentally a story about a dark part of a person's personality. Yeah, it's like the half of somebody that is two people with one soul, light. or yeah, one exactly. soul and one person. Um, it's that kind of yeah. Yeah, and I think that is the idea that he consumed the twin Stark, whatever, in the womb, and it became and became part of him that was then cut away. That's interesting in itself, mm. but it doesn't explain the concept of the ghost, and I never want the ghost explained. I like the thought that, because fundamentally, particularly when you get into the sort of the, the Castle Rock universe and everything else, you are talking about a world in which people can be psychic and a world in which people can have a magic shop that tells you exactly what you want. And I think the idea that he has generated and created the malevolence himself is much mm. more interesting than the idea that it was a ghost who happened to who is linked to him because he was his twin mm. it's much more interesting if it is something that he has actually made there's um there's that line in the book um that i think he uses again in or he mentions in in uh on writing that's that thing about writers inviting ghosts yes um yeah he, he describes uh, he describes writers as or as Liz does, describes writers as being um, mediums. And what they yeah. do is they, they, they speak to the other side and they bring back messages and they bring back the stories from there, which I thought was a very interesting kind of uh, metaphor. It is. What's, what's most interesting about it, to me, is that I think that actually the writing is writing is is creation right and and king repeatedly uses that as a concept throughout his books mm. writing is creation it is reporting uh it's reporting on what you feel on your on your surroundings and somehow bringing that into being and maybe you're channeling while doing so but you look at the shining that is somewhat that is about the act of trying to create while malevolence is influencing it is about trying to remain true to who you are while, yes, the metaphor of drink is bringing you down. Mm. But still, in, in this book, I don't know, he isn't channeling. He is, he's still creating something that's inside him. Like the novels are still coming from inside him. He's not, what's so interesting to me is that he isn't going, well, I get possessed by the spirit of another writer and write these words. Mm. He's going, these words are a part of me and I have written them and that has created this thing. It has enabled my alter ego to somehow slip the bounds of corporeal form and turn into this thing. And that's so fascinating to me because it, I'm assuming there are books that King has written and never published. Well, obviously sure. he's written and never published, but ones that are significantly nastier than the ones that we have seen. Mm. I do feel like he has got a couple of uh, a couple of Stark novels somewhere that feel like he went. I can never show anyone those. Well, maybe they were published under another name um, and nobody ever found out. 
you know, there is there is a theory, isn't there? There is a I mean, I don't believe at this point that anyone would have been able to keep that no. quiet. I think you reach a... <laughs> uh, and if there was a second pseudonym, why would you not put DC Story on it under it? I mean, like, you just... <laughs> but, um, but it's interesting that um, <laughs> there are certain books in, in, in the canon, in the oeuvre, if I can use that word, that do feel yeah. very close. Like he's talked a lot about how Pet Cemetery is the one that kind of frightens him because it deals with the death yeah. of children. And I think the dark half as well, I think... I think he said it's, it's the closest one that you get to where you, about the process of writing itself, you know, the idea of tapping into something in you that you don't particularly like all the time and something that actually takes control of you. I mean, have you found that with... Like, I think that's where you have to go as a writer. Yeah. Like, you have to take yourself to those places. Otherwise, you are... He's a writer. And... It would have been so easy to keep plowing the same furrow, mm. right? He could have spent his entire career doing rewrites of it with occasional rewrites of lesser novels. And I know sometimes, you know, he's been accused of that. Mm -hmm. Like you've got the Buick A. Christine sure. thing. You know, yeah. there are things where... I think there's, there's a lot of um, The Outsider in the dark half as well. To me, The Outsider read as... A lot of The Outsider. Because you've got the... Every man protagonist who is two people essentially, and one is irredeemably evil, and the other is kind of a paragon of virtue, and it's how they kind of collide and can't coexist with each other. Yeah, that's the outsider is to some extent what, what if the dark half but murderer <laughs> rather, <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. um, which and, that, and that's a book that I've got unsurprisingly, probably, I have a lot of time for. And I, and I also think, uh, so, so side note, it's, it's probably my favourite adaptation, my favourite screen adaptation of a king. That's um, very good. Uh, certainly yeah. in modern times. Definitely TV um, adaptation, I think that's, that's one of my favourites. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's incredibly mm. strong, I think. Um, and I'm really sad they haven't found a way to make a season two, which I know would be very hard, but I feel like... Well, you could do If It Bleeds kind of the sequel to The Outsider you could I mean it's 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 a short novella but you could probably stretch it out yeah probably mm. um you should um, write that I think I don't know <laughs> <laughs> you should pitch that. Uh, for a long time I thought about when, when I was starting off uh when I was I, in my 20s I remember reading about kings like oh you can have you know the option for anything for a dollar policy and I remember sure. thinking Oh my god, what could I do? Like, could I? And, and uh, at the time, being like, oh, the, the dark half film wasn't the best. Like, could you get the option to the dark half and somehow do an adaptation? I someone's doing it now, aren't they? There's another film of it being made, I'm sure. They've been talking about it for a while now, right? Yeah, well, they're all there, um, <laughs> except for the regulators. Nobody wants to touch that one, which is. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> that would look really if you like Spike Jones, maybe or Charlie Kaufman, you could probably do like a very strange version of that. Probably. Yeah. You could do I tell you what, you could do the regulators and desperation, do something really weird with them structurally. The regulators yeah. would be a very odd book to do. JJ yeah. Abrams could do the regulator, and I shouldn't say that because he'll be listening to this somewhere. <laughs> the Yeah, you Yeah, he's a regular the regular listener, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but I think it's interesting it, it's got... that you mentioned the film of the Dark Half, the George Romero uh, movie. It's not yeah. particularly good, as you say, 
But I think it's main the main problem with that. And I love George Romero, and I you know I love Stephen King, and I love you know Michael Rooker as Alan Pangborn. I think is really good in it. But yeah, it's um the thing is they have the same actor play Stark and yeah Tad, which I think it completely misses the point of the book. That it is, mm-hmm. it's not that simple. It's not that simple as just like no. there's a twin. It's not just a twin. It's something else as well. Which is yeah, exactly. It becomes evil twin slasher story yeah. rather than actually being. Uh, you want to question the reality of it. Mm. You want to question how can this person be a manifestation of this thing that I created, mm. and what does that mean? How can this? And do I have responsibility for this thing that I created? If it's just you with a different haircut running around, it's not. I, it's it's just not particularly interesting. I get it. Yeah. I just remembered being very disappointed. I remember it being one of those that I I got from the local video shop, mm-hmm. local video rental place, and being very disappointed. Yeah. That it wasn't even. Unlike you, I like George Romero a lot. It was not a particularly competent horror film. If you're going to make it even a conventional slashery horror. Mm. Um. I didn't love it. Yeah, I was an avid reader of Fangoria at the time, and they were really talking this film up as being like the ultimate, uh, <laughs> like King Kong versus Godzilla. It's Stephen King and George Romero. This film, this film can't fail. And then you watch it, and you're like, it failed. It just can't. <laughs> it absolutely failed. Really, really. How did you do that? Yeah. <laughs> On a number of Dave, it really yeah. failed. I mean, Timothy Hutton's a good actor, but he, he couldn't really pull it off. I think. But um, uh, so. Structurally speaking, going back to the dark half, I love the yeah. I love the first couple of hundred pages where you get this series of murders in New York and yeah. kind of in various points because it reads like a really good Elmore Leonard crime novel. I really like that. Bit. Yeah, and it's interesting to talk about genre in terms of this because it is kind of a crime novel in a way. You could you could rewrite it without the supernatural element and just have him as like a crazed stalker and he's having killed at the end. And I think, yeah, I know, I know King has a lot of respect for, for crime novelists like Ed McBain, Elmore Leonard and uh, Westlake and all those people. And yeah, I mean, what, what do you think about the idea of genre in this? Because it is about the idea of a, a man who can write in two genres, but can only do one successfully. Yes. And Stephen King was kind of given the option very early in his career of, as you say, do you just want to write horror novels? And he said, yeah, that's no problem. And you know, it, it's proved well for him because he can do other stuff as well. He can do those crime novels. I feel for him to some extent. I mean, I don't feel for him and all his money and all his readers. Obviously, sure. that's yeah. lovely for him. But like, when be nice. I think when he steps outside what he is loved for, he does. It does certainly seem that there is a drop in readership sometimes. Mm. And like you know, you mentioned Bag of Bones, a book that I loved, but it's not. It's not up there with the the greatest King sellers of all time. Yeah, but I would argue it's probably one of his finest books. Agreed. Um, I think that I think he's also. A, I don't think he feels this way now, or I would hope he doesn't, because I certainly believe that um, he's the writer from his generation who outlasts all of the others. Mm. Even when you get across to the super literary Pulitzer Prize winning Nobel, like Nobel Booker Prize winning writers, King's the one that in 150, 200 years people will still be going. Now let's read Misery. Mm. And I, I truly believe that. 
absolutely uh, it's very sloppy when people go it's an easy it's an easy thing to be like oh he's the dickens of his time whatever but he is yeah. it's, it's it is as simple as that published a lot sold incredibly well very beloved and the books are good mm. crucially he's an excellent writer mm-hmm. i think he probably wished he was taken more seriously back then mm-hmm. and i think that the sort of the he doesn't knock literary fiction. He just basically says it's just impossible to be that person, Yeah, which is kind of true. He was pigeonholed as a writer and the expectations of two novels a year of the length of the Tommyknockers, <laughs> for whatever reason, were obviously making him, uh, were testing him. And I think that he knew that he was stuck writing what he was expected to write at that time. Mm. You are completely right when you said the dark half is a crime novel. It is, it's a crime novel. It plays with the sort of really hard boiled genre in the extracts of the, the Alexis Machine stuff. It, mm-hmm. he is, it is absolutely a crime novel with this supernatural element on top. Of it. And I, I think it's happened a few times over his career where he's gone. I want to do this. Uh, Mr. Mercedes is an excellent example as well of a book that started off, certainly that trilogy, the Bill Hodges trilogy, started off being, this is entirely a uh, crime series and obviously is not a crime series when you actually get into it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think he really wanted, I I wouldn't shock me if you got to sit down with him and go, right, when everything was said and done, when you were clear of your demons and you had that, if you could have come back and written Ed McBain style hard-boiled crime novels, would you have done? And I think you probably would have done. But I think there's that yeah. lure of you've got a readership who wants something from you. And your brain also clearly thinks in a very specific way about certain things. <laughs> and it's very hard yeah, to step absolutely. away from that and go, you know, I think he is, I think it's really unfortunate <laughs> It's really unfortunate that horror as a genre is treated the way it is treated. Because Agreed. I feel like it is the uh, it is probably the bottom rung in terms of what people actually respect. But the reality is that it's like it's science fiction, crime, horror, they are all genres that uh, perhaps more I'm trying to think of how to say it nicely. Um, <laughs> more literary writers will um, borrow liberally from the ideas and concepts within those and turn them around and turn it into something that is presentable. I think it's seen say... as an acceptable place to slum. Like if Paul Theroux yeah, writes a, like exactly. a sci-fi novel or Margaret Atwood writes a sci-fi novel mm-hmm. or, you know, I don't know, um, what's that? Who did... Um... Well, we're now, we're, we're three novels deep into uh, Kazuo Ishiguro writing science fiction fantasy. Exactly. We're three novels deep into... Between Never Let Me Go, The Blind Giant, and Clara, Clara and the Sun, you've you've got three novels that are specifically genre novels, mm-hmm. and I, he would admit that he's writing genre novels. I think I think he would say, you know, he's trying to do his slant on them, blah 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 blah. But still, that's what he's doing. Mm-hmm. It's almost impossible for King to cross over the other way. It's odd, isn't it? And I think that that must burn. I think even when he does the hard case crime novels, people are still like, oh yeah, but it's Stephen King, so where's the ghost? Well, yeah, I saw some interviews uh, that he did for the recent one later, and everybody's asking. So what, they always ask the same question. So what scares you? Oh, when are you going to write horror? And it's like, oh, 
that's so lazy. It's so bloody lazy. And there is this really interesting relationship that he has with the genre. Because so I talked recently to um, one of my guests about It. And he writes It, which is like, essentially, it's like the Moby Dick of horror novels. And it's got ev- it's almost got literally every kind of monster, every kind of ghost, every kind of specter, <laughs> yeah. every ghoul in it. And then he writes It. And the three books he releases after that are The Eyes of the Dragon, which is fantasy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tommy Knockers, which is sci-fi, Misery, which I think is a straight thriller, and then actually releases the Dark Half, which is more of a crime novel. So essentially, he does go really deep into horror, but then he kind of edges his way out of it as well, I think, and says, "Well, you know, it's it's like he gets it out of the system with it." He says, "This is what the horror genre absolutely is," but I can yeah, do other stuff. I don't know if it's apocryphal. Mm-hmm. Wasn't it going to have all the universal monsters in it? Or it does have them all in one form or another, doesn't it? It's got the Wolfman in it. It's got, it's got a Dracula. It's got the Frankenstein's monster in yeah. it. The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Yeah, like I said, it's, it's yeah, the Wolfman. Uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. They're yeah. all in it. I, and you see, I think like you look at some of them, Salem's Lights of them, great example of like it's, it's a horror novel. Yeah. There are no other ways of describing yeah. it. It is. And I love that for it. I think that's really important. And I can't believe I've, I've referenced this for the third time today. Rose Madder is not a horror novel. <laughs> yeah. I don't think you can really call it a horror novel. Agreed. I, there are some where you get into ghost story territory. It's kind of magic Vagabond is fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Rose Madder's got so I mean, it's like, it's, it's a very strange book. Mm. It's just a really weird... Uh, has anyone done that yet? No, no, nobody's tackled that one. It will be I interesting hope to see does because it's a really interesting one. It will be great, great um, towards the end with the the the, the Minotaur and the yeah, I'd love to see. Yeah, that, you know. it's just it's just it's just such an interesting. It's just a very interesting book. Anyway, um, <laughs> I think that he. I don't think you could argue that many of the things he's published, even recently, that many of them are straight up horror novels. Really, um, um, even the Outsider is essentially a procedural, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much. So. I mean, you spent like the Outsider, a third of that book is, and I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'm remembering it wrong and, and overegging it, but but a third of it seems like it's spent in the interrogation room. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's an enormous chunk of that novel. Yeah, it is procedural conversation, um, and I think that you. Uh, what was the last one? The in, no, what was after the Institute? Oh, that was... Um, or is that the last? No, Institute and... God, I've got bloody books behind me. Um, no, it's Institute, then later, and then it's Billy Summers next. But there was there was Elevation. Oh. And Elevation was like that little tiny oh, Castle see. Rock book, which I quite liked. Oh, you see, I have not actually read that yet. Oh, it'll take you an afternoon. It's a lovely little read. Yeah, it's... um. Oh really? Yeah, and again, it's Castle Rock again, so you get a lot of familiarity with it and that kind of thing. And then, yeah, exactly. So it, it's 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 worth a look. Now uh, our, hour, our hour is almost up, and I, I promised my sound editor I'd keep these interviews under an hour from now on. Unfortunately, sure. I'm not Joe Rogan or anybody like that. You know, <laughs> talk about bow hunting for three hours. So I do have a couple of questions uh, I ask all my guests. Firstly, yes, what are you reading at the moment? Uh, Between uh, DIY jobs I, and painting and carpentry and all that stuff, that 
I am reading two things at the moment. I am reading uh, the <laughs> there is a uh, novel by Emma Stonex called The Lamplighters. Okay. Which is, um, well, I would say uh, it's a ghost story. Certainly, it feels like it's a ghost story so far um, about uh, three lighthouse keepers who go missing. Like it. Uh, from a lighthouse, mm-hmm. and their wives are. Uh, sort of how they deal with it and and it's very beautifully written beautifully written uh so i'm reading that and i'm also i'm countering that because i like to have uh, a non-fiction on the go at the same time i'm countering that with a uh, book about the pet shop boys okay very cool absolutely is that a which is exceptionally good is that a recent book sorry is that a recent release? no 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 it is hang on let me tell you when it was because i cannot remember please Uh, go for it it was Written, uh, so it's called The Pet Shop Boys, literally. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, written by this guy, Chris Heath, who used to be a writer for Smash Hits. Uh, okay. And uh, back in the day, Neil Tennant worked for Smash Hits as well, and they knew each other. And they said, so it was in the late 80s, I think it was 89 or something, they said to him, do you want to come on tour with us and write a book that's honest about this book? The first tour they ever did, and it was of uh, China and Japan. And they said, come on tour with us and just write an honest book that's about what happens and it's fascinating because it's very warts and all but it's it's beautifully written and it's um i like books where you get an insight into you don't have to be a fan of the music at all it's it's one of those it might even be better if you're not you're just reading about these people who are in this very strange situation where they are not pop stars but suddenly they're pop stars yeah (laughs) um Right, they're both going. Sorry, that's fascinating. I like those. Thank you. Uh, yeah, yeah, they're, they're both question, excellent. Next question: What is a book? Uh, what's what's like an underrated book that you think more people should have read? What's what's kind of gone under the radar and you're, you're kind of uh, you think didn't deserve it? Ooh, that is a really good question. Okay, I would say there is a book called. Which one would I choose? I'm going to choose Zero Bomb by Matthew Hill. M.T. Hill, I believe it was published under. Okay. Which is, I love it. It's so weird. It's uh, set slightly in the future. There's this, there's a courier and there's an automated fox that speaks to him. And... uh, there's a science fiction author who wrote these books in the 1970s about like mecha giant robot fighting space battles that were slightly prophetic actually about how the world was going to end. Nice. And I, I love it. I, he's, he's a tremendous writer who manages to absolutely leap across genres in a way that is wonderful. And he's like massively underappreciated. It's the sort of book when you read them, you go, I don't, I know these are weird, but I don't understand why they haven't sold a huge amount more. <laughs> um, and he's a, he's a beautiful writer. So that's what I'm going to go with. Good Zero answer. Bomb. Thank you very much. Now, before you let go, is there anything you want to promote? Have you got any books coming out yourself? Or any other projects you've got on the go? I know you're a busy person. I've just had a novel published, which will be of interest if people have read the first in a series of these novels. So I have a novel published called The Edge. Mm-hmm. Um which is the third in a series called The Anomaly Quartet. Uh, the first book was a book called The Explorer, which was in 2013. And the third one's just been published. I've just finished the fourth one, which is the final one, and it's done. And um, those are 
me trying to explore the form of horror amongst different, uh, in slightly different genres. So oh, yeah. taking the, the first one set on a, on a spaceship and is fundamentally me going, how do you do, um, how do you do uh, slasher thriller horror? The second one is me going, how do you do body horror? The third one is me doing, how do you do gothic horror? Because nice. I thought it would be really interesting to see how you do gothic horror on a space station. It's on a space station. So how do you turn it into a haunted house? Um, and the fourth one, I won't say what it is, but it's a completely different exploration of a different sort of horror. Um, but they all tie in, and that's just been published. That was published in February. Very cool. So thank you very much. And I recommend everybody go and buy, buy hundreds of copies of these books because they, they sound incredible. Thank you. That would be really nice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> make films of them, for God's sake. I want to see films as well. Uh, <laughs> fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. And thank you, James Smythe, for joining us on the Constant Reader Podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. And we look forward to seeing you again next month when we have got Andy Stanton, the creator of Mr. Gum, coming back for a second bite at it. It was so big we had to we had to do two interviews for that one. So something to look forward to. We'll see you then. Thank you.